The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the teaching of the word of God this morning. A few moments of silent prayer for the use of 1 John 1, 9. If necessary, and then we will, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity to gather together to worship you through the teaching of your word, that the study of your word is the highest form of worship because it enables us to renew our thinking, which is the mandate in the New Testament that we are to completely exchange the human viewpoint, pagan concepts that have infiltrated our thinking from birth with the uh, truth, the divine viewpoint of your word. Now, Father, we can only do this in this age under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, because He is the one who teaches us, He is the one who stores the doctrine in our soul, and He is the one who recalls it to our memory in time for application. Now, Father, we pray that we might be able to set aside the distractions of coming events this afternoon or events that have occurred in the previous week, that we might be able to focus our attention on Your Word, that uh, we might learn the doctrine that we're studying this morning, that we might be challenged by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 16. 16th chapter of Judges is probably one of the most well-known Bible stories, the story of Samson and Delilah. Judges chapter 16 cannot be understood, though, in simple isolation. It's not simply the story of someone who is more brawn than brains, who is duped by a... Um, attractive female into giving up the secret of his strength. It's neither is it some tale of magic like many liberals wish to portray that, that somehow the Bible shows that 
Samson was this guy who got his strength from his hair. The hair was not the source of Samson's strength. It was God, and it, this, the hair was simply a vi- external visual indicator of his Nazarite vow. Judges chapter 16 is the closing chapter in the central part of the book of Judges. Now, this section began back in chapter 3, verse 5. The introduction covered 1, 1 down through 3, 5. And in that section, we're introduced to the major theme of the whole book of Judges. And that is that there was no king in Israel at that time. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in that introduction, especially in the first part of chapter 2, we are introduced to the ongoing cycle, the cycle of disobedience, discipline, and then divine deliverance that characterizes this book. And the central part of the book then develops that theme in relationship to the leadership. The rest of the book, from chapter 17 through 21, focuses on how this theme develops among the people, how they have succumbed to relativism. And since leadership, the leadership of a nation, always arises from the culture as a whole, leadership always tends to reflect the values of a culture. Therefore, when we have certain leaders in our nation that we may look at and wonder how in the world did we ever end up with somebody like that in public office? Often we need to only look at our own culture. They are reflections of who we are. Now, we may not like that, but that's the way it is. And so as we look at the leadership through the cycles of the judges, we see that they exemplify the deterioration of positive volition in Israel. It is a time of apostasy. The book of Judges is not a positive book, as we've seen. It's not a book that presents these men in terms of their uh, spiritual maturity as great heroes of the faith. Now, the thing is, many of these men, most of them, are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the Hall of Faith chapter because it represents and presents all of the Old Testament Uh, Men, the Old Testament believers, because of their doctrine, because of their faith, because of the way they trusted God. And at the end of the list where the writer spends a lot of time developing uh, Abraham, Moses, the heroes of the Old Testament, he comes to the end and he says, and I don't have time to talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Of course, these are all judges. Yet, as we have seen by looking at these men, they are not exactly the picture of spiritual maturity and wisdom. They are not the kind of men that we would desire our children to emulate as they grow up. But they did at times trust God. At crucial times in their lives and in the life of the nation Israel, they trusted God. They exercised the faith rest drill and they knew a promise of God and they implemented it. And for that, they are praised by God. And as we look at that as fallen creatures who are saved by grace, we realize that it's all grace. It's a tremendous book on grace orientation because it helps us realize that it's not based on who we are, what we have done, and it's and even the spiritual life is not based on who we are or what we have done. And, and if God could honor men like uh, Gideon and Jephthah and Samson by placing them in Hebrews 11 as an example of the faith rest drill, then, as one person here put it, gosh, there's hope for me too. 
And that's the grace of God. So we look at this in terms of its expression of God's grace because God continues to work in the lives of the nation Israel despite their carnality and despite their failure. Now, now why is that? Well, we have studied this in detail, so I don't want to go there and, and take the time to ex- exegete it. But it's the Abrahamic covenant. God established a contract, a legal contract with the nation Israel on the basis of with Abraham and on the basis of that God promised that he would bless all nations through Israel he would give them a specific piece of real estate and that there would be a seed that would come through the nation Israel so those are the three provisions of the Abrahamic covenant the land the seed and the blessing the blessing to all people and in his Integrity. God is not going to go back on his word. God is not going to violate his promise despite the fact that Israel falls into idolatry again and again and again and again. And we have seen this continuous cycle. And it's a deterioration. We see the increase of apostasy and reversionism from generation to generation. It began with Othniel. It's going to end with Samson. This chapter, chapter 16, is the last chapter in this leadership cycle. Othniel is presented as the, as the standard bearer of integrity of leadership at the very beginning. There is nothing negative said about Othniel. He is a great warrior. He exemplifies everything that the Jewish male should be at the time of the conquest. He's trusting God to give him the land and to give him victory over the Canaanites that are in the land. And he goes forth on the basis of the promise of God and does that as a reward uh, Caleb gives him his daughter, uh, Oxa, as a wife. And nothing negative is said about Oxa. She's presented as the ideal woman, as it were. She is a woman who is wise. She has foresight. She understands the dynamics of what's going on so that when she is given to Othniel as a wife, she brings a dowry, and that dowry was a piece of land in the Negev. And the Negev is in the south of Israel, and it's mostly made up of arid land, desert land, and there are very few springs, and it's important to have water. And as she looked at that, she not only thought of what was going on in her, in her life and in her life with Othniel, but she was thinking in terms of the fact that this was a permanent inheritance for the family, that this was something that their family, their clan, their children, grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren down through the ages would possess. And so as an example of the uh, wise Proverbs 31 woman, she realizes that, that she needs to take some initiative in this to go back to her father and request springs, that there should be water on this land so that they can have a prosperity in an agricultural economy. So she looks forward to the future. She is engaged in what's going on. She is not just some passive doormat wife, which is the way that, that um, the radical feminist movement always wants to uh, caricature the Christian view of a wife. She shows respect, submission to her father. She goes to him. She gets off the donkey. She bows before him. She requests, using all of the proper terminology, uh, in their culture, she shows respect. She calls him Lord. She asks, uses, we would use the word please. She presents a case for why she should have the land. And, and Caleb grants her her request. And so they, together they are presented as, the, as an ideal couple at a time when Israel is still oriented to grace and still applying doctrine. 
But things begin to deteriorate, and we see Ehud is the second judge, and there's little hints in there that he's, um, he's not quite everything that Othniel is. He is presented as a left-handed man, which carried certain overtones in that culture that, that he wasn't quite uh, as open and honest as others would be. And, of course, he used that to his advantage when he assassinated Eglon, the king of Moab. And then we studied Deborah. And we saw that in the midst of that apostasy at that time, there were no men who were willing to step up to the plate for leadership in the land. And so God raised up a woman. But she is not the communicator of the Word of God. We noticed that there was a difference between a prophet who is one who is a spokesperson for God and a teacher. Because often the the issue is raised that that um, oh, Paul was just some misogynist in the New Testament. He wouldn't allow women to be preachers. And what about examples like Deborah in the Old Testament? Well, Deborah was not a preacher in the modern sense or a teacher. She was a prophet, and the role of the prophet was to communicate exactly what God said to communicate. And there's a difference between someone who is communicating exactly what somebody else is saying and someone who is teaching and exercise and the natural authority that goes with teaching and an explanation of that. And a prophet is someone who's just simply a spokesperson. And I used the illustration of when I was in Kazakhstan last year and I had two interpreters. Most of the time they were women. And their job was simply to translate what I was saying. It was not their job to teach, explain, or anything else. If there were questions, the questions would be relayed to me and I would then answer the question and explain the point of doctrine. And there's a difference between that. I was the authority. I was the teacher. They were simply the, the mouthpiece. And that's what a prophet was. And Deborah was a prophet and a judge, but that does not violate. It's not any different from the, the mandate in the New Testament that, that uh, men, because they are the designated spiritual head of the home, the designated spiritual leadership in the church. Men are the ones who are to be in authority, and men are the ones who are supposed to communicate the Word of God. One of the more interesting things that I had noticed again and again, because this is such a hot issue in so many churches and many denominations today, that when pastors and churches get involved in putting women, it's always subtle, but it'll start off, they'll put them in a position of leadership uh, in um, this position or that position, and the men do not respond to female leadership. And before long, what happens, I've had many pastors communicate this to me. They've gone to a church, and they have women in all kinds of positions of leadership, even in some cases assistant pastors. And they say, I just can't get men involved in the church. And my response is always, fire all the women. Men will step to the plate when the women aren't there. But you start putting women in places of leadership, the men will back off. It's almost guaranteed. So Deborah rises to the foreground and the man who is to lead the troops, the general Barak, is kind of wimpy, demonstrating the fact that the men in that apostatized generation were not willing to step to the plate. So when she goes to him and says, God's already given us the victory, you're to lead them, he says, I won't go unless you go with me. So we see the, the increasing feminization of the male and the masculinization of the women in society. What goes along with that is the paganism of the, of the Canaanite culture around, around them. 
begins to influence the thinking of the Jews, it has radical effects on all of the divine institutions. There's a breakdown of personal responsibility. That's why they get involved with the uh, fertility cult and the, the phallic cult of the uh, Baal worship. There's a breakdown of marriage and family. We see that increasingly by the time we get to the next judge, Gideon. Gideon has uh, numerous wives as well as a concubine down in Shechem. So there's a breakdown in marriage. There's a breakdown in the respect for women and the role of women in society. And that increases with Jephthah. And by the time we get to Jephthah, he is going to immolate his daughter as a burnt offering to God, as a part of a bargain he had made with God because he's thinking like a pagan. He grows up in a pagan environment. His mother was a prostitute. She remains nameless. Uh, so once again, that is uh, another uh, negative uh, slant on the way women were being impacted in that Jewish culture. There was no place for that under the Mosaic Law, and you had very little uh, prostitution going on uh, at the time of Joshua. So Jephthah ends on a negative note, and then we come to Samson. And Samson begins to put some, some finishing touches on what has happened to women in the society by this time. And we see, and the interesting thing is that of all the women in Samson's life, there's only one that has a name. The writer, the writer is not being derogatory towards women. The writer wants us to pay attention to the fact that because of paganism, women are being treated less and less with respect and as individuals, so that the women remain unnamed except for one, and that's Delilah. Aside from her, we don't know the name of Samson's mother. We don't know the name of the first wife he had. We don't know the name of the prostitute he goes to at the beginning of chapter 16. And it is only Delilah that we are familiar with. Now, the time frame here is also important to understand because it is a picture of God's grace from the period of the judges to the time of Samuel in the beginning of 1 Samuel. But Jephthah and Samson overlap. They are uh, alive basically at the end of the 12th century B.C. From the time uh, Samson is born, approximately 1123 B.C., dies at 1084. Samuel comes along and is born when Samson's about seven years of age, so they are contemporaries and their lives overlap. Samuel is just seven years younger. So when we look at the major events in Israel, for example, at the Battle of Aphek, which is important as background to the episode in 1 Samuel uh, 16. When at the end, everybody should be familiar with the story. Samson's captured. He's blinded. He's put in the temple of Dagon. When he comes out for the big drunken banquet and orgy fest, he leans up against the pillar, prays to God, and knocks the pillar down, and everything falls down and kills the Philistine. Well, that's at the Temple of Dagon, but it's also an indication that the Philistines haven't learned a whole lot because it was at the Battle of Aphek in 1104. 1104, this is 20 years before Samson dies. That's important to understand. Remember, Samson was a judge for only 20 years. So this happens at the beginning of his judgeship when he's stirring up all this trouble. At the Battle of Aphek, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And it was taken where? It was taken to the temple of Dagon and placed before this enormous idol of Dagon. And every morning the Philistines would come into the temple 
and Dagon would be down on his face in bowing in obedience to the Ark of the Covenant. So they would set the idol up the next morning, and then they would come in the next day, and Dagon would be down. And then the third time they came in, the arms and feet are cut off. God is demonstrating that the gods of the Philistines are impotent before the God, the God of Israel. Even though they have defeated them in battle, he wants to make sure they understand that that doesn't mean their gods are, are superior. But they don't learn. So they're going to stick Samson in the temple of Dagon once again and have more trouble. Well, let's begin by looking at this particular passage. First, our Judges 16 is divided into two sections. The first episode covers the first three verses of Judges 16. And the thing we should note is that both episodes take place in Gaza. Let's orient ourselves on a map. Here's a map of the southwestern section of, of uh, Israel overlapping with, the, um, overlapping with the area of the Philistines. This area of blue over here is the Mediterranean and the strip of land. Along the, uh, along the coast was where the Philistines had their five cities, and there were five lords, the five leaders of uh, Philistia, and it was those leaders who ru- ruled and governed together. They're called the five lords of the Philistines. And the cities are Ekron, Gath, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. Gaza is the furthest south. We still talk about Gaza whenever we talk about the Gaza Strip. It's still an area uh, that battle where battles are fought over for the possession of the land. So in this area, Zora, is where Samson is from, and now we find him deep inside Philistine territory. In fact, when we come to this episode at the at the beginning of chapter 16, as we read it, it's rather enigmatic. Why is this here? In fact, it raises a number of questions for us. First question we should ask as we read this is, why does the narrator fail to mention Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, in this episode? The story is completely secular in tone. The amazing physical feat of of Samson coming along and ripping the gates of Gaza up from their hinges and carrying it 38 miles to Hebron is not said to be a result of the movement of the Holy Spirit. There's no indication that God's at work at all. It just seems that this is based on, on uh, Samson's natural physical ability. Remember, this occurs at the end of the 20 years of Samson's life. So Samson has, we're not told much about what went on in those 20 years, but obviously he's been stirring up a tremendous amount of trouble with the Philistines, and they are now out to get him. They want to remove this thorn in their side. So the first question we should ask is, why is it or what's the significance of the absence of God? And of course, it indicates that God's not involved in a spiritual sense with what's going on in Samson. Just like Israel, Samson is in apostasy. God is working in terms of his providential care for Israel. He's taking care of them. He's protecting them. He's working out his plan despite their carnality, despite their failure. Much the same thing happens in our own lives when we're out of fellowship and extended carnality going through reversionism. It is not that God leaves us. God forgets about us. God is still involved. We're still indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit still functions, but not in the sense of the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. He's still functioning in trying to get us to recognize that we're out of fellowship, 
recognize that we're in carnality. God is disciplining us and trying to get our attention. And he is still working to protect us and to bring, as well as to bring discipline into our lives to get us to turn back to him and confess sin and move forward again. So that's the emphasis of what's going on in this chapter is how God works behind the scenes despite the carnality of the nation, how God works behind the scenes in our lives despite our own carnality. Second question, why does the narrator refuse to interfere with the plot? See, in the past we've seen over and again he'll say, well, this happened, and then he makes a comment on it. The narrator just removes himself completely from this whole episode. He just tells the story and that's it. And we're sort of left hanging. Third question that is raised is why is the, the story so enigmatic? That's an important word to, remember, to think of in this section, because back in First Samuel chapter 14, I mean Judges chapter 14, when we met Samson and his episode with the, the lion and the, the bees and the honey that were in the lion, then he goes to the wedding feast and he poses a riddle. And this is the only place where we find these riddles. And the writer wants us to pay attention to the fact that this represents the fact that, that what's going on in Israel is a riddle to the people. How God is working, God himself has become enigmatic to the people because of their carnality. So this is just another way in which this writer, he's a master of literary plot and development and storytelling and the way he weaves together so many different features and chooses his words in such a way as to bring different things to the reader's mind. Now, we miss most of that reading it in English because we don't have those word associations that would be there for a Jewish reader. But he is loading everything that he says with, with a connotation to cause them to think about the spiritual condition of the nation and, and its failure. Fourth question, what, there, in the text, let's read it in verse... Um, Verse 1, we read, Now Samson went to Gaza. He saw a harlot there, saw a prostitute there, and went into her. And when it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. Now, if you notice in your English translation, the word, the place, is in italics. That means that there is no Hebrew word there in the beginning, in the original text. It just says, they surrounded well, they surrounded what? They surrounded the gate. They surrounded the place where, where he was. They surrounded uh, Samson. We're just left to guess. There's, there's, there's different things like that that are, that are left out, so we're not sure exactly where they were located. If they're lying in wait around the city gate, that raises another question. How in the world did Samson get past them, and what happened to them? Because we're not told. Here we're told that a large armed body of men is lying in wait to ambush him, and we're never, then we're never told what ha- actually happens to them. Then another question that is raised is, why did Samson carry the gates 38 miles to a hill outside of Hebron? We're not told. Is he just showing off? Is he trying to make some point to, to, uh, to the Philistines? We're, we're just left hanging. So there's, there's a lot of puzzling things here. But I think that the reason that these three verses are here, there are three reasons. First of all, the writer wants us to understand that Samson, after 20 years, is still as apostate even more so than he was before. He still has a problem 
with the sexual lust of his sin nature. He still has a problem with women. And what we are to infer from that is that as at the beginning of his uh, operation as a judge, as at the, his adolescence all the way through maturity, we can infer that he probably had problems with women again and again and again. I think a second thing that we are to pay attention to is that the Philistines... Now, we would, to put it in our language, they have a contract out on him. They are really angry and aggravated by Samson. He has been a continuous source of irritation and problems throughout this 20 years. From the time of the Battle of Aphek, which took place about the time he began uh, operating as a judge, up to this point, he has continued to play. There have probably been many, many other episodes where they have been in conflict with, with Samson. And then the third reason that we're told in these three verses of what happens in Gaza is because it shifts our attention to Gaza, which is where the final episode in Samson's life takes place. So we're now focused on the extreme southwestern part of the plains of the Philistines and looking at the city of Gaza. Also emphasizes the fact that just as Samson is now uh, completely surrounded by the Philistines and that he is has um, that he is living, operating deep inside their territory, it also symbolizes the fact that the Jews in their apostasy, their thinking has become completely surrounded by pagan thought, and they're thinking on the basis of human viewpoint, and they've succumbed to the idolatry and all of the uh, religious practices and thinking of the, of the Philistines. So that sets the stage for the for the fall of Samson, starting in verse 4. But before we get there, we need to wrap up the initial event. So they lie in wait. Verse 2 tells us they, they set an ambush for him at the gate of the city, and they kept silent all night. And they're saying, well, wait till morning, and then we will kill him. So they're out to assassinate him. And then, and this is important because this isn't a small group. This is what a gate would look like. This is the design of the uh, city gate at Ashkelon. We have an uh, archaeologist have not uncovered the gates outside of uh, Gaza, but this is what the gate of an ancient city looked like. They had a strong wall, fortification around the city, and the gate was not simply the, the gate itself set on its hinges, but there was a guard room around it, so you had all the traffic had to narrow down and pass through this area. And as you can see from this diagram, out here would be the, this upper area here would be where the courtyard of the city was located. But as you came through the gate, there were these guard room chambers on each side of the gate, and the the depth of the gatehouse itself was probably 50 to 70 feet in depth. So you had three guard rooms on each side, and those guard rooms would hold up to ten guards. So you could have as many as 60 or 70 men hiding in these guard rooms, waiting to ambush Samson as he left. Now, the gates of the city of um, Gaza were made of metal. We're told in verse 3, Now, Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. So he grabs the whole assembly. He just doesn't take the doors off. They're made with metal. They're made out of 
uh, uh, bronze probably. So they're, they're tremendously heavy. He doesn't just pull the, the gates off the hinges. He pulls the gates, hinges, and the posts that are set deep in the ground. Remember, this is a defensive fortification. He pulls this whole thing up. It would weigh many hundreds of pounds. It might have weighed as much as a thousand pounds. And he picks this whole assembly, just rips it out of the ground. And perhaps he did it as, as, as the men were about to ambush him. Perhaps he did that as a show of strength to warn them off. We, we don't know. The writer leaves us, leaves us hanging. But he grabs the entire gate assembly, and we're told he pulls them up along with the bars. He put them on his shoulders, and then he carries them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. Now, here's a map. Gaza is located near the coast, down here in the uh, lower left corner, the southwest corner. And Hebron is over here in the territory of, of uh, Judah, in the southern part of Israel. It's 38 miles from Gaza to Hebron. So he carries this 1,000-pound metal gate on his back for 38 miles. Why? We don't know. And just another picture of the, the riddle that Samson presents to us. His, here he has all of this grace blessing in his life, and yet he continuously rejects it. And many times when we look at people, we wonder, why do they reject God with all the blessing God's given them, with all the opportunities they have for doctrine? Why is it that they continue to not apply it? Why is it that they continue to get involved in everything else in life other than doctrine? Why isn't it clear to them? And it's, a, it's an enigma to us. It's a puzzle. Why people are negative to God, but it's the result of their own negative volition. Now, here is a picture. love these old Bibles that give us great illustrations. Here is a picture of Samson carrying the gates to Hebron. Notice it's 38 miles, but it's not 38 miles downhill. He's moving from the coast up to Hebron, which is in the hill country in Judah, so he is going uphill to get there. So just another indication of the tremendous physical strength that Samson had. And I think the reason that these, another reason these verses are included here is to remind us, remind the reader of how powerful Samson is. And it's just another hint of what a cause of trouble he was to the Jews. I mean to the Philistines. Then we come to verse 4. Verse 4 introduces us to Delilah and introduces and sets the stage for Samson's fall and his death. Verse 4 contains only nine words in the Hebrew text. It's a, an economy of words, a paucity of words there. We would think there would be more. We would expect more. We would anticipate a little juicy gossip about Delilah, perhaps, and it's just not there. In verse 4, we read, After this it came about. In the Hebrew, just as a temporal indicator that, that sometime later, we're not told how much later, sometime later, it came to pass afterwards that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek. This is Samson's problem. He loved many women. He couldn't get his emotions, as far as women were concerned, under control. Over and over again, Samson is going to... Um, be led around by his lust pattern. And he's not going to think he has no concern at all for spiritual things. And what we see here is over the period of 20 years that this has become so dominant 
that now he has lost all sense of discernment, all sense of warning. When we look at what happens in the episode as Delilah entices him, we wonder how in the world could he be so stupid. And yet that's exactly what happens in carnality under the influence of the sin nature and under the tenacity of arrogance. What happens is again and again, we make the same stupid decisions even though, though we know better and before long we no longer think of them as stupid. Our values become reversed towards the end of, of, uh, of uh, reversionism and what we begin to do is do things that we know are wrong and now we call them right. There's a complete reversal of our value system. And as a result of that, we lose all common sense, so to speak. We lose all sense of right and wrong and and. Uh, we begin to think that we can sin with impunity and God will not discipline us or deal with us. So this is Samson's problem. He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek. And there's also another hint here. There's a couple of hints in this, this chapter, but it seems here that the riddle that he gave the Philistines back in chapter 14, verse 18, finds its answer. There, The riddle was, what is... Sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? The answer is it's Samson's lust pattern. And it overwhelms him every single time. And as I noted earlier, for the first time, we're told the name of a woman in Samson's life. Her name is Delilah. And even the name itself becomes another riddle. We're not sure exactly what the etymology of the word means, but... It very possibly comes from a word that is related to an Arabic word, dala. But the Arabic word, dala, is a cognate. Arabic is very close to, to uh, Hebrew. And the Arabic word, dala, means to flirt. So there are those who think that Delilah was just a name for flirting. She was flirtatious, indicated her character. But the name may also be an, a pun. On the Hebrew word, a combination of the letter D plus the Hebrew word Lila. And the Hebrew word Lila means night. And then under this view, her name would mean of the night. She's a woman of the night, a lady of the night, plying her trade. So her name indicates the character. So what we've seen here is that, that um, uh, Samson is not attracted by the women of Israel. He is attracted by the foreign women, the Philistines, and this is a violation of the Mosaic Law because they are forbidden to marry a non-believing Gentile. They are only to marry Jews. And that stresses the point for us that, that it's important, especially for parents, to train your children and to talk about it from the time they're young. Parents should lay down the fact that it will never be acceptable for your children to ever date go out with, have close relationships with unbelievers, especially an unbeliever of the opposite sex. And you have to lay down that rule very early in life, and then when they hit puberty and all of those tensions, they're going to know that there's no compromise on that point, and perhaps they won't make that mistake. But Samson is constantly seeking the satisfaction of his lust from the Gentile women. Now, another thing that's interesting throughout this section, we see it in again and again, and I'll highlight these verbs as we go through. We see four verbs that are important. The first is to discover or to see. They're words of knowledge. 
they, they, the Philistines want to discover, see where his great strength lies. Then, uh, this is the objective that they are going to present. They want to discover where his strength lies. Then they want to overpower him. They want to bind him. And they want to torture him. Verse 5, the lords of the Philistines, these are the leadership, the five leaders, one from each of the cities of the Philistines, came up to her and said to her, entice him. In other words, lay a trap for him, deceive him, and see where his great strength lies. They figure she's a woman of the night, so they're going to uh, go ahead and let, let her ply her trade, and they will pay her off. Entice him and see and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him see they they want her to 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 over they want to find out where his strength lies overpower him third to bind him and then fourth to torture him literally they want to exercise revenge on him for all that he has done and then they give her a price then we will each give you 1100 pieces of silver notice we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, how much is that? We'll find out that, that Delilah was enticed because this was going to set her up for life. Let's have a little comparison. That's a total, then, of 5,500 shekels of silver. Although the value of a unit of, of silver varied in the ancient world like it does today, we can gain some concept of what this was related to. This is three, t- three times greater, three times the weight of the gold that was given to Gideon after the victory over the Midianite kings. And remember, he melted down a portion of that to make that golden ephod. And that was worth well over, in today's dollars, well over a million dollars. Um, we could also compare this to the 400 shekels of silver that Abraham paid to purchase a burial plot for his wife. In Genesis 24:15 and 19, David paid 50 shekels to Aruna for his oxen and threshing floor, which was later the place where the temple was built. That's in 2 Samuel 24:24. 24, 24. Jeremiah paid 17 shekels to purchase a field in Jeremiah 32:9, and 30 shekels were set as the price of a slave in the Mosaic Law in Exodus 21:32. In modern equivalents, 1,100 shekels. It was probably between $175,000 and $200,000. So multiply that by five. She's got quite a nest egg here. Now, many liberals think, well, this is just too great. There's got to be some problem. This whole thing was just made up. But when you look at the text, you can't do that. They are extremely concerned. He has cost them mightily because of all of his activities. And their, their whole economy is being shut down. Remember, when he, in the last episode, in the last verse, we saw that he, he took the uh, jackals the, and tied their tails together and put a torch there, and they ran through all their fields and destroyed all their crops. So they're suffering economically. They're suffering agriculture. It's worth every penny for them to uh, be rid of this particular problem. So Delilah is going to set her trap, starting in verse 6. There are going to be three attempts to get Samson. They're covered in 16, 6 through 9 is the first attempt. Attempt In verses 10 through 12, we have the second attempt. And then in verses 13 and 14, the third attempt. First attempt, Delilah said to Samson in verse 6, Please tell me where your great strength is. You can just imagine the setup here. She gets him 
she feeds him a good meal, gives him some wine, which we know Samson was drinking despite his Nazarite vow, and gets him relaxed, and then she begins to just whisper in his ear, Tell me where your strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. She must be into some kinky sex, perhaps. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh cords. Now, this is interesting. It's not literally seven fresh cords. It's seven sinews in the Hebrew. What does a sinew come from? It comes from a corpse. Remember, as a Nazarite, he was not allowed to touch a corpse. So he's beginning to play with the real issue of his strength, and that is his relationship to God. So he's in dangerous territory. He says, If they bind me with seven fresh sinews that have not been dried, they've just come from a corpse, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So apparently he fell asleep, and the lords of the Philistines came in in verse 8. The lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in wait inside the house. They're going to ambush him. And she said to him, The Philistines are on you, Samson. She wakes him up, but he jumps up and snaps the cords as a string of toes snaps when it touches fire. So it just instantly is gone, and his strength was not discovered. Now that's the first attempt. Second attempt in verse 10, Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please tell me how you may be bound. Oh, honey, tell me the truth. Now, you, you didn't tell me the last time. Tell me now. This was probably a few weeks later. Said to her, If they bind me tightly with new ropes which have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Of course, that wasn't true. So, in verse 12, Delilah took new ropes, bound him with them, and said to him, Once again, Philistines are on you, Samson. Men are lying in wait in ambush again, and he jumps up and snaps the ropes like a thread. So once again, now you would think that he would be warned that this that I mean, the, the Philistines are in the next room, and he, he he should know better. But see, arrogance is deceptive. It destroys our judgment, eradicates our objectivity, and when you're operating on the lust pattern of the soul and extreme reversionism then it's almost as if you can't resist it anymore because it's so, such an ingrained habit pattern that you just don't have the strength anymore to resist in carnality. The only time the way to resist is if you are recovering and restored to fellowship. So verse 13, the final attempt. Then Delilah said to Samson, Up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me now how you may be bound. And she probably found some tremendous way to entice him. She probably went out to Victoria's Secret and brought some, you know, what was the word we came up, some sexy skivvies. And she is going to um, entice him. And he says, well, if you weave the seven locks of my hair with a web and fasten it with a pen. So he's getting really close now. It's my hair. But he doesn't tell her. The final thing. So she sleeps. She we, once again, verse 14. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his hair, wove them into the web, fastened it with a pin, and once again, third time. What's the saying? Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Well, this is the third time. It's fourth time is going to be the charm. Once again, it doesn't work. And then finally, she says, "How can you say I love you?" Now you always watch out when somebody starts saying to you. If you really love me, you would do this. You just want to run as fast as you can and get as far away as you can. 
if you really love me, Samson, you'll tell me. You just deceived me these three times. You haven't really told me where your power lies. And she, over and over again, now she's like the um, Proverbs woman who's uh, like a drippy faucet, just nagging him over and over and over again. And finally, we've already seen, with, like with his young wife, he can't stand a nagging woman. He always gives in to her. So, verse 17, he told her all that was in his heart. He told her everything that he knew about his vow. And he said to her, notice how he, even now he's self-deceived. Arrogance is self-deceptive. And he's convinced himself he's really spiritual. See, that's the problem with a lot of people in carnality. They think they're really spiritual. They think they're really okay. That somehow they manage to justify all their carnality. And in Samson's mind, he, he, he thinks that he has fulfilled the vow. He says, a razor has never come on my head. Well, that's true. He said, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. No, he hasn't. He's violated it again and again and again. I mean, he was supposed to be, but he hasn't. He says, if I'm shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So now he has finally told the truth, and she looks in his eyes, and she can tell that he's finally been honest with her. And in verse 18, we read the, the beginning of the final episode of his capture. When, when Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up at once. So finally, she's not even going to set the trap. It's like they've cried wolf three times. We're not going to go through this again. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her, brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. Now, how she caused him to fall asleep, whether she slipped him a mickey or drugged his wine or did something else, we don't know. It doesn't say, but somehow he falls asleep and a deep sleep comes on him and she shaves off his hair. And then she began to afflict him, to torture him. Now, we don't know exactly what that involved, but she began to torture him, and his strength left him. He couldn't react, and he is now as weak as a kid. Verse 20, she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awakened, awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at the other time. See, this is what he's thinking to himself. Well, I'm just going to shake myself free. This is just another trick. He doesn't realize his, his hair has been shaved says he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That's the issue. It's not his hair. It's that in this stage of carnality, finally, he is under uh, the sin unto death. This is going to be the ultimate end of Samson's life. And so the Lord has departed from him, and the Lord is his source of strength. It is not his natural ability. It's not the hair, and the hair never was. So maybe he even got to thinking that it was the hair that was the source of strength, because obviously he's influenced by pagan thinking, and pagan thinking operates on magic and mysticism. But the Lord departs from him. So the Philistines seize him, and they gouge out his eyes. This was their form of punishment. They would take a captive, and, and it, it, it beats having guards in the jail and everything else. It would certainly solve a lot of problems in prison if you just gouged out every prisoner's eyes. We, live, we have a constitution that prevents cruel and unusual punishment, so we don't do things like that anymore. But in the ancient world, they did things like that. See, today, we're not against cruel and unusual punishment. We're just against punishment. So they gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. They wanted to make sure his strength didn't come back. And he was a grinder in the prison. And we're not sure at all what that word means, but apparently... It had something to do with, with uh, cleaning up the prison, the, the lowest drudgery around the prison, cleaning out the latrines and things like that. But then we have a little note from the editor. This is the first time we have an editorial note in this whole chapter. The writer inserts this for our information. 
verse 22. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. A little hint. Something is going to happen. Foreshadowing. Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice, for they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country, who has slain many of us. So they're going to have a great feast and praise to their god, and Samson's going to be the central showpiece. It happened when they were in high spirits. I just wish that translators of the Bible would get down to the real koine here. This doesn't mean when they were in high spirits. It means when they were drunk. When they had many spirits in them. It so happened when they were drunk that they said, Call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he entertained them. They came out and they thought, Well, let's make him do a few tricks. See if he can. We're going to have a. Today they would have probably a tractor pole or something like that. And they have him come out and he's standing between the pillars waiting for uh, action. And while he's there, this young boy who's with him and brought him out from the, from the prison is there, and he says, Boy, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. I guess he began to think that, that perhaps God would give him grace one more time and, return, and restore his strength. Verse 27, Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. And we know from the architecture what we've discovered from from archaeology is that on, on the temple you would have an open area in the middle. This was where all the lords were gathered in their banquet, and then they would have these huge columns, stone columns all around. And then there was a roof, and up on the roof they would have many seats, and the other people in the town could come and sit up there and look down upon all the festivities. And so there's over 3,000 people up on the roof, and Samson is going to call upon the Lord in verse 28 and say, O Lord God, and this is the first use of the word Yahweh in a positive sense in this text. So it tells us that apparently there has been some uh, confession of Samson at this point, and he is crying out to God to remember him and to give him strength. But even in this, typical of a carnal believer, there is a mixed attitude here. He has noticed the emphasis on the first person. There's... Give me strength so that I can avenge myself on my enemies. That's the thrust. He's more concerned with himself and his own vengeance than God. So it's like a lot of Christians. They, they confess their sin, but within a microsecond, they're, they're sinning again. They, that's typical of someone coming out of reversionism. Nevertheless, God is gracious because God's got his plan. And his, he's going to do this not because of Samson. Not because of Samson's prayer, but because this fits in with God's plan to destroy the Philistines and to protect the nation Israel. His plan for Israel is greater than Samson's carnality or the carnality of the nation. So he is going to answer Samson's prayer despite the fact that Samson is still in reversionism and this will be the cause of Samson's death as he goes out under the sin unto death. Verse 29, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand, the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it, so that the dead whom he killed at his death, that is over 3,000, were more than those whom he killed in all his life. 
Since 3,000 is more than the other numbers we know about in the text, we know that he must have been killing numerous other Philistines throughout the period of his life, and so that indicates that he was a great, great trauma and great uh, troublemaker for the Philistines. And then the closing note in verse 31, Then his brothers and all his father's household came down, took him up, brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah his father. Thus he had judged Israel for twenty years. Now that is the end of the cycle of the leadership. Next time we'll come back in chapter 17 and we'll look at a couple of the most incredible closing episodes. But before we do that, I want to wrap up with a little summary on what we can learn from this account. What happens here, and this is the, Samson happens to be a target for the so-called evangelical or Christian feminists because they want to say, well, this is just another example of how the Bible promotes uh, patriarchy and how evil patriarchy is and how men just continuously destroy a culture and women really are the, the ones that ought to be in leadership and the ones who ought to uh, provide Stability for, for a nation. Trouble is, matriarchy has never worked in any culture in all of history. The problem is that it's a caricature of patriarchy. See, the Bible presents the male as the leader in the home. But that leadership is presented always under the image of a servant, where the leader operates on genuine Humility, seeking the best for those whom he leads. That's the function of the male in the family. He is the spiritual leader. He is not there serving himself and his own desires, his own whims. But what happens in human viewpoint paganism, this is perverted into an abusive, authoritarian, totalitarian relationship that seeks to dominate and control. What the human viewpoint of our day does is set up two poles. The human viewpoint abusive relationship, and the, which is totalitarianism, or the extreme authority view, total authority, with the opposite pole, which is always anarchy. We're going to let... We're going to let women run everything, and we're going to break down the authority in the home. And human viewpoint paganism always swings between these two poles. You see it in government. You see it in the family. You see it in every institution. Only on a biblical basis do you have a view of authority that is healthy and balanced. And that was perverted in the garden, and we have seen many times in our study of the curse in Genesis 3:13 and following that when God is God outlined what the results of sin were going to be in the marriage relationship he said women were going to desire the man and the desire there's not a sexual desire it's the Hebrew word teshuka which is used again in Genesis chapter 4 to indicate when when God's warning Cain about his lust and his anger and he says, be careful, sin is crouching at the door, ready to destroy you. And it's that same word, and it's the idea of overpowering to control. And that's the desire that women would have, and God's painting a general picture, 
that the trend of the feminine soul under the curse of sin is going to be to dominate and control. But in contrast, God says the man will rule over you. And again, it's a negative term. And it sets up the whole war between the sexes, that there's going to be this, this power struggle between men and women throughout history and this, this tendency to, to struggle. And that's why you can only resolve that after regeneration based on assimilating doctrine in your soul and applying that in the marriage. And then you see the reversal of that effect exemplified in Ephesians chapter 5 where wives are to be submissive to the husbands and are to respect the husband. And husbands are to love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. And Christ said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so you see this whole example there and the, the reversal of that, that warfare problem. But human viewpoint paganism always sets it up this way that in, in the home, whenever you teach that, that the woman is supposed to be submissive to the man, oh, you're just teaching patriarchy. Well, their view is a pagan view of patriarchy. There is a biblical view of patriarchy, and that involves male leadership that is under the authority of God, is authority-oriented and based on true and genuine humility. So this account presents what happens under the sin nature control of human relationships and how in a pagan culture women are often reduced to being simple objects for male control. And it doesn't reject the fact that there is destructiveness in male patriarchy, but it's when male patriarchy flows from a sin nature, it always destroys relationships. And again and again and again, we see how women become the victims of male authority when that authority is not controlled by doctrine. And when a culture falls into that trap, it is always going to polarize more and more, and you see this breakdown in male-female relationships. So next time we'll come back and we're going to see how this works itself out in an even greater sense in these two episodes at the end of Judges in chapters 17 through 21. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to have studied your word and to see the outworking of sin and carnality and what pagan thinking does to a culture and how paganism destroyed uh, was destroying Israel and how the reversionism in Samson's life led him to the sin unto death, and how uh, he has become the picture for us of the dangers of carnality and apostasy. Father, we pray that we might be warned and challenged by this example. But we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, that they would know and recognize that your grace is still operative, that no matter how big a failure we might be, as exemplified by Samson, that your grace is greater than our failures, and that your grace provided a perfect solution for our sin at the cross, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin when he died on the cross, and that the issue, therefore, in our lives is not our sin, but your solution. The issue is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to accept that free gift that you have provided. That Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of bargaining with God or church attendance or morality. It is simply a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied and pray that we might be challenged by them. In Jesus' name, amen.